This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Welcome to How To. I'm Charles Duhigg. So we took the first couple of weeks of 2021 off because we figured, you know, what's going to happen? It's going to be a kind of slow time. Pro-Trump rioters have stormed the Capitol building. We're in, we're in, we're in, we're in. A person has been shot. Congress has been unlawfully blocked from carrying out its constitutional duty to certify the results of the November election. Washington, D.C., as you know, is still sifting through the wreckage of earlier this month. President Trump has been impeached for a second time. Political fights are dominating the agenda. And all of that's a pretty tough situation for an incoming president and new lawmakers. The beginning of a new Congress is usually this time of of hope, especially for first-time legislators who come to Washington, D.C., brimming with ideas and a sense of idealism. It is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy to begin the 117th Congress. But today, the nation is divided, really divided. And our politics have become not just difficult, but dangerous. That, however, is not stopping one freshman lawmaker. All right, Marilyn Strickland, Congresswoman-elect from the 10th District of Washington State. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Have you gotten tired of saying it yet? (laughs) I have. We get sworn in on the 3rd of January, so I can do another version that just says, (laughs) Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland from Washington State's 10th District. I spoke to Congressman Strickland a few weeks ago, before the riots at the Capitol, and before she was sworn in as the first African-American to represent Washington State in Congress, and the first Korean-American woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. So my people are from Georgia on my father's side, and he joined the military as a young man, fought in two wars, and was stationed in Korea, where he met my mother. And our family moved to the States during a time in America when it was illegal for my parents to be married to each other. Representative Strickland eventually grew up to become mayor of Tacoma, Washington, which has always been kind of overshadowed by Seattle, which is about 30 miles away. I was just tired of people talking trash about my hometown. As mayor of Tacoma for eight years, she became known as a real problem solver. And then two years ago, she decided to run for Congress. And it really comes back to a conversation I had with my mother. She's 91 years old. She's still alive today. And when I proposed to her the idea of running for office, Her answer was very straightforward. She said, well, of course you have to do this. You have responsibility. There was a time in America when people who look like you couldn't vote. Of course you're going to do this. And and Congresswoman-elect, do you mind if I call you Marilyn? You you Um, sure can. Please call me Marilyn. Thank you. Thank you. So so Marilyn, you'll be headed to D.C. soon and taking office soon. And I imagine if I was in a situation similar to yours, part of me would be really anxious. Mm Mm-hmm. What are you what are you feeling right now? You know, when you have the opportunity to serve in local government, I tell people that is the infantry of government. You are on the front lines every week. But you're right, you know, going to DC with this giant body of people who represent different parts of the country with the whole variety of political affiliations is different. 
So how does Marilyn navigate this new landscape? How does she make a difference while remaining true to her roots and beliefs? To answer those questions, we turn to someone who has thought a lot about how to stay an idealist, even once you're in the belly of Washington, D.C. Samantha Power, former U.N. ambassador under Obama, a Pulitzer Prize winning human rights activist and President Biden's new pick to lead the U.S. Agency for International Development. And like Marilyn, someone who once showed up in Washington wondering how things actually work. To go into a new domain and kind of admit how little you know and that you're starting almost from scratch is a hard thing to do. But Samantha did eventually figure out how to stick to her guns and still get things done, even when dealing with adversaries like the Russians. And considering the last few weeks, we could all use some of those lessons. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions, built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Samantha, let me ask you, I mean, what, what do you wish someone had told you before you went to Washington, D.C.? Uh, never compare your insides to somebody else's outsides. In 2009, Barack Obama had just been elected president, and Samantha was one of his aides when she was invited for the first time to brief him in the Oval Office. I was going to go in there. I was going to just nail the briefing. He was going to remember how brilliant and indispensable I was. Those walk-in privileges were going to be right. forthcoming. And I walk over, and I'm, as it happens, pregnant at the time. I'm, I think, seven months pregnant. And I cross from my office, and I get into the West Wing, and I just think, I don't actually know where the Oval Office is. <laughs> And so there's Samantha, ready to work with the new president to solve the world's human rights problems. And she realizes she is totally and completely lost. So I go back to my office. I go onto my computer under the unclassified system, Google Oval Office West Wing <laughs> map. 
print it out, go back over. And of course, the map is like basically a Washington power map about, you know, where's Valerie Jarrett sitting in relation to Barack Obama in relation to David Axelrod. It's not a map to find the bloody oval. So, so I go in and I'm carrying this map. I'm 10 minutes late. I'm sweating. Oh, I'm pregnant. I'm carrying my wife. Stressed out. You know, the briefing time was over. The secretary general was about to arrive. But the point of the story is not even the chaos and indignity and relative humiliation of that particular experience. It's that I just thought I was all alone. Like I could have asked somebody, where's the oval, right? I didn't want to be the person who didn't know her way around. So I didn't ask the question. So I end up late. And what's incredibly cool, and I think such a profound insight, is that when I finally basically had friends, I learned that so many of them had printed out the same map. They'd had the same experience. (laughs) But I come back to this expression, don't compare your insights to someone else's outsides. Everybody else looked like they knew exactly what they were doing, that they had it all figured out. And I'm so self-conscious and wanting to make a good impression and so forth. And so it's, I guess the lesson on one level is to ask questions, of course, and not be afraid of showing vulnerability in that way. Mm-hmm. Marilyn, how does that strike you? No, it, it strikes me as, you know, Samantha saying, it's okay to be vulnerable and to demonstrate you don't know everything. And I'm going to use an example that seems kind of trifling, but, you know, I remember, you know, on the, during our freshman orientation a few weeks ago, you know, we were, you know, we went to the Hill, we're walking through the halls of Congress and every woman is wearing heels or some version of a heel shoe. <laughs> well, I don't travel without flats. And by the time two and a half hours took place, I just changed my shoes and put flats on. And somebody was like, oh, my God, I brought mine, too. (laughs) Everyone starts changing their shoes. And we just talk about just some very practical things. So it's little things like that that show, look, I'm not perfect. We know we have to present a certain way, but we're all human here. So here's our first lesson. It's okay to admit what you don't know, to to be vulnerable, to, to sometimes change your shoes. In fact, it's usually in that vulnerability and uncertainty that we gain our first and and sometimes our best allies. And having allies, of course, is important because they're the ones who help us figure out how to be effective. By the time Samantha became an aide to Obama, she'd become, as one magazine put it, a Joan of Arc for humanitarian intervention. Someone who had spent most of her life as a human rights activist railing against the system. And now, though she knew strongly what she believed, she was suddenly part of that system. And she wasn't completely certain how to actually get things done. Here I am, ready to try to help, for example, the people of Darfur, who I've been um, advocating on behalf of for several years. I'm trying to support them and use my new perch as the president's human rights advisor to do so. And I don't know how the hell to write a decision memo or who it has to go to and and who I have to get it cleared through. Without coalitions, without allies and personal relationships— you're just pushing water uphill. It's it's nice for me to listen to um, Samantha talk because I'm taking notes about things we have in common. You know, you come in, guns blazing, you want to do all these things, and then you realize a few things. You realize that large institutions are not built for change. They are built to defend the status quo. And often when you want to propose change, you're met with suspicion and people get defensive. The other thing that's interesting, too, is that, you know, the political, social and economic systems in which we have to operate as women and even more so for me as a woman of color do not always welcome us into positions of leadership. So often when we are trying to lead on things, it takes more effort. And Samantha talked about the coalition building you have to do, which is essential if you're going to move anything through a place like Congress. 
And the best way to build those coalitions is to try and figure out some deeply human way to connect with other people. Take, for instance, Samantha's experiences at the UN with former Russian ambassador Vitaly Cherkin. His position on Syria versus my position on Syria were night and day. And yet it turns out we both love sports and we both had a son and a daughter. Yeah. Can I ask Samantha, I feel like I hear that advice very frequently about politics, that what we need is we need people reaching across the aisle and and forming human connections. And yet it seems like it's one of those things that's much harder to do than to, to want to do. What do we do to find that connection? Well, I'd offer a couple examples in the in the context of the Russian ambassador because it, it, it was the relationship that had the highest degree of difficulty. I mean, just taking time outside the formal settings of the UN, going to NBA basketball games, you know, having... Uh, and and you, would, you would literally call him up and say, like, hey, Vitaly, do you want to come see, like, a Nets game? Yeah, like, I mean, sometimes I'd need to cool off for days before, you know, it, it isn't, <laughs> I'm not so large um, and without a capacity for moral outrage. I mean, he would cross lines that would make it impossible for me to, to do what I'm describing. But, you know, after cooling off, I had to recognize I couldn't get one thing done on behalf of human rights, on behalf of preventing sexual violence against women and girls. There's not one thing that I could do in the UN Security Council without Russia acquiescing to it. So I just did not have the luxury. And I think American politics, particularly in divided government, uh, is a lot like that. Marilyn, is that something you think about, about how to position yourself in the spirit that you bring to the negotiations you'll be part of in order to try and find that common ground? You see these folks on TV and press conferences, and they are in the halls of Congress. And then when you meet folks, they are parents, they are grandparents, they are people who just want to do good. And, you know, do some, does some people make you question whether that's true? Absolutely. But for the most part, you know, what you want to try and do is get to know people off the clock with all that spare time you're going to have, by the way, right? <laughs> and, you know, and, th- and that's the challenge. You know, I know I, I hear stories of, you know, back in the day when people actually, you know, spent more time living in D.C., their kids went to school there, they would see each other at softball games, at events, at churches. And, it's, you know, it's, it's a different relationship and it takes time to form these relationships. But, I you know, I will come back to the moment that we are in, in the crisis that we are facing here domestically and around the world, and how this has to be one of those times when, you know, getting COVID, losing your job, not having health care, those things cut across any party affiliation. And at some point, people at home are saying, wait a minute, you need to do something. We need some relief here. What is the holdup? And, of course, it's even harder to pass new laws after a riot at the Capitol and an impeachment, all of which has only made the sense of crisis in D.C. more acute. But when we come back, Samantha and Marilyn will talk about how moments like this can also lead to real lessons in leadership. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. 
In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. We're back with Representative Marilyn Strickland, who's just starting her first term in Washington, and Samantha Power, human rights activist, former UN ambassador, and just nominated by Joe Biden to run the U.S. Agency for International Development. Samantha says that the way she got here goes back to this one night in 1989 when she was an intern at a local TV station in Atlanta. She was a budding sports reporter editing baseball highlights when breaking news came in from China. Uh, The footage from Tiananmen Square was beamed in on the news feed and it was uncut, unfiltered and ghastly, honestly. Um, It was young people my age. I was only 18 then, I think. And they were protesting to try to get the Chinese government to liberalize and the crackdown began. So it was a revelation to me that that the fate of young people in a square in Beijing would, would affect me as this did. After college, Samantha worked as a war correspondent in the Balkans, an experience that later shaped her Pulitzer Prize winning book on genocide, A Problem from Hell, which is how she caught Obama's attention. But when Samantha joined Obama's cabinet, she smacked up against this cold, hard reality that governing, like every kind of job, presents challenges in managing not only the issues, but other people. In the Situation Room, I often felt like each of us came in, including me, by the way, that we'd come in with a predisposition, with an idea of what we wanted to get out of the meeting. And and sometimes when Obama felt like I was being not sufficiently prescriptive, he would snap at me and say, we've all read your book, Samantha. And, you know, my thought bubble was... Actually, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure copies can be made available uh, upon exit. But uh, I, of course, felt crummy. But Obama almost invariably, I, I think pretty much every time that some, we had an exchange like this, and there were probably a half dozen times something like that happened, would come back to me 10 minutes later and say, let's get back to Sam's point. Yeah, you know, I was a little hard on her. Let's 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 tease that out a little bit. Sam, oh, just go on. He would do on. that in the meeting. In the meeting. But then the other cool thing is pretty much every time I would receive a note passed from the head of the table, but not from the president, from the vice president, and written on the note would say something like, and it, this was often when Biden, by the way, would, would disagree with me, but he would, on the note, would say some version, I have a stack of them here in my office, uh, would say something like, that's exactly why you're here. He needs to hear this. One of them said, go Irish, exclamation mark. Uh, (laughs) Another said, never stop raising your voice. In other words, his emotional intelligence to see I'm demoralized, I'm kind of slouching in my chair, (laughs) And, and Biden, just the human touch, sort of seeing beyond the issue at hand to to the individual who is wallowing a little bit at the end of the table, but also a decision-making style, wanting that dissent. Yeah. Well, you know, and one thing I will say is that sometimes people get defensive because you have to make a hard decision. And when you start to internalize and say, wow, they're questioning my values as a human being, it can make you get defensive. And so I think that when we talk about leadership lessons, dissent is important, but understand, too, that sometimes 
the way you hear something and the way that makes you feel makes you react a certain way. And I've been in situations where people have called me names and say, you don't care about people, you don't care about this. And it just makes you feel really horrible because you would not get into this public service if you didn't care about people. This is our next big lesson. When we're trying to stay idealistic while also trying to move the levers of power, we need to remember that our emotional lives and the way we treat our coworkers as people, that's often as important or more important than the memos we write or the initiatives we push. But that also brings up another kind of interesting question, which is how do we decide which ideas or initiatives or plans are worth our time? Because there's only so many hours in a day. For Samantha, she uses what she calls the X test. Every time I was at a, a juncture and deciding what was next or whether I should pursue some crazy idea I'd had, I would pose the question this way, which is, if all I get out of, in that instance, moving to the Balkans and trying my hand as a freelancer is I learn server Croatian, I learn how to write quickly and, and maybe more crisply, I see the UN in action. So to be just there and learning that set of things, I mean, jeeps, that that would be better than any graduate education. Um, And I would come back having grown. That's the X test. If all you achieve is X, if all you get is something short of your hopes, but, but still you learn something valuable and you help at least a little bit, is it still worthwhile to try? The X test is important because it gives us a way to figure out what deserves our attention and what we can safely say, like, I'm going to let that pass by. And this test, for instance, is why Samantha ended up working for Obama in the first place. At that point, he was just, you know, a U.S. senator. And Samantha was, at the time, a professor, which was one of the first, like, really stable jobs she'd ever gotten. I finally had health insurance. My mother was finally calm that I wasn't going to be living the life of the freelancer for the rest of time. And I was stable. Everything was good on paper. But then I just had that dinner with Obama. And and so the X test there was just if all I get out of spending a year in the Senate office is to be a better teacher on campus and to, to have a more complex and multifaceted understanding of how foreign policy is made or checked then it'll have been worth it. And women in particular, sometimes at career junctures, have described to me this this inhibition, this fear of this sort of loss aversion of like, well, I have maybe, maybe Marilyn felt this in, in having been such a successful local politician. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be really daunting to think about losing. But if instead you say, look, if all that happens is I throw the hat in the ring, you know, show what a woman of color can achieve and get the grassroots exercised around a set of issues that haven't been as prominent as they should have been in in prior congressional races. Even if I lose, like that's not nothing. That is such a good point about not being risk averse when you're making changes in your career and also just the idea of running for office. And you know, you know, having been a mayor for two terms and at this stage in my career saying, oh, you know, was it a good idea to run for Congress? Absolutely. And when you think about the risk, you know, and I will tell you, I mean, you have to come from a place of comfort and privilege to take these risks because right. for, for me, sure. I can say, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, you know, I'm married and I live a relatively comfortable life and I'll find a job eventually doing something. I've got a skill set. Samantha, you, you mentioned that before you went into government, before you became an insider, you were an activist, you were an outsider. I mean, you're someone who was very openly critical of some of the decisions that both Democrats and Republicans had made when it came to foreign affairs. 
as you entered government, how do you know that you're staying true to the activist and the passion you bring when standing up in the middle of a White House meeting and saying, we're doing the wrong thing, we have to act now, might not carry the day and the White House might not do anything? You have that same set of objectives. I had a list. I kept a list on tape to my computer when I was a White House staffer. I kept that same list, not a different version, an updated version of the list, but the same genre, uh, taped to my computer uh, when I was UN ambassador. And so to just be pragmatic, being effective outside and being effective inside means meeting people where they are. Did I lose? And when I lost, did I did I like it? Absolutely not. Um, what was the story I told myself? I guess I would say I tried to, I, I journaled a lot. I tried to go meta. I didn't want to be one of those people who kind of rationalized, you know, staying in government if if there were lines that were crossed. And I had written about, I had valorized people who resigned from government on principle. So I always tried to to stay self-aware. And, and usually that meant like actually making lists of what I was achieving, where I was failing, what the opportunities were as I went ahead. So to quickly recap, after you figure out what you want to achieve, prioritize your time and make sure to hold yourself accountable. Write down why you're doing this stuff in the first place. Write it down when you start. Tape that list to your computer so you see it every day. And as time goes by, Remember to ask yourself, am I staying true to these goals? Or am I allowing myself to get distracted by by all the noise that just creeps into any job? If someone was listening to this who's not in government, but they're stepping into a leadership role at their company, or they're stepping into the CEO role, or they're gonna they're gonna take over the the local nonprofit, you know, what what would you advise to anyone? about what you've learned about leadership and how to use it that you think is valuable for them to hear? I'd say for starters, to meet people where they are as a leader, you have to learn where they are. <laughs> so <laughs> right? often, often leaders are making a lot of assumption that, oh, interestingly, people are exactly where I am. I'm going to meet them where I am, <laughs> which is where they must be, right? So it really does require a kind of solicitousness and, and um, you know, just, just listening and learning and feedback mechanisms and so forth. It's really easy to feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really easy to feel like you're not making a dent. I mean, I, I really feel for Marilyn coming to Congress, all these constituents who have these expectations of her and they want her to deal with climate change, racial injustice, and the pandemic. <laughs> when you talk about making change in any respect, it is an ecosystem. You have people who are activists, you have people who are insiders, and you have people who resist change. And in this system, you have to find a way to come up with compromise to move things forward. And yeah. you often hear in the dialogue about change that, well, you're just an incrementalist. And people say that in a very pejorative way. And I remind folks that we would not be having a conversation about universal health care had we not passed the Affordable Care Act. And yeah. sometimes things just take time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. M- Marilyn, let me ask you something else. W- when you think about, you know, moving to D.C. and starting this new job, like, what are you most excited about? 
You know, I was talking to a sitting member of Congress and, you know, she said to me, she said, look, you know, you've, you've come off of a long, hard campaign. You go right into freshman orientation and it's a lot of information that's coming your way and being thrown at you. And she said, and there's going to come a point during your first month where you're going to walk past the Capitol at night. You're going to turn around and look back at that building being lit up and you're going to say, oh my God, I'm here. And I think about my family's origin story and the fact that their daughter became mayor of the hometown and then now is going to represent in Congress. And so just really thinking about the privilege of representing and doing this job when I think about just in my lifetime, people who look like me couldn't even vote. Yeah. Samantha, let me ask you just one last question. Do you have any parting advice for idealists who might be listening, who who are excited, but but are also anxious about whether they, they'll actually be able to create any change. Shrinking the change, I think, give, allows people to define for themselves targets that they can achieve, and achievement is fuel. Since we've talked about Barack Obama, I'll give him the last word, which is he, when he and I were sometimes arguing about and I was wanting to do something bigger and he was seeing the full field and had all of his domestic challenges and working across the aisle and all the rest of things that I wasn't having to think about as much as him, he would say to me, Sam, better is good. <laughs> better is good. And he'd then usually add some version of, and it turns out better is actually a hell of a lot harder sometimes than worse. <laughs> and so, so like, I think there's something, I think that's motivational, I feel like. Like, let's work for better, and then we, 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 can, we can keep getting busy after that. Thank you to Representative Marilyn Strickland and former Ambassador Samantha Power for sharing their stories and all of their fantastic advice. You should definitely look for Samantha's book, The Education of an Idealist, a memoir. And, of course, watch for Marilyn on C-SPAN. Do you have a problem that needs solving? Or a world-changing piece of legislation that you hope to, to make into a law? If so, you should send us a note at howtoatslate.com or you can always leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001, and we might have you on the show. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen and Rosemary Belson produce the show, and Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is senior managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director of audio. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for listening.